Hi, everyone, and thanks once again for tuning into the Free Speech and Medicine Paradox podcast. And thanks once again for putting up with my unfortunate Cape Breton accent. One of the beneficial side effects of all the strangeness with COVID was that I developed a whole new network of friends. One of those friends is Roy Epen. And for those of you who could couldn't spell it either when you heard it. It's E-A-P-P-E-N. Roy, as you'll hear, is a very special guy. He's an endocrinologist. Um, He's a brave and thoughtful man, and he was willing to wade into the very difficult and fractious issue of uh, transgenderism. Roy, along with Ian Kingsbury from the Do No Harm organization in the U.S., recently put together an op-ed, which they published just a week or more ago in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, This was an op-ed just um, kind of criticizing the Endocrine Society's current policy on uh, childhood uh, gender transitioning and the support of that. Um, This uh, editorial um, has stimulated the the head of the Endocrine Society to reply and defend their guidelines, and it stimulated a large group of scientists in Europe to uh, send a letter supporting Roy's view on things that that in Canada and the U.S. we've gone too far in the direction of helping kids to transition. You can uh, read all that in the Wall Street Journal. Another notable thing that Roy has done recently was under the banner of Do No Harm at the annual Endocrine Society meeting, uh, which this year was in Chicago, Roy set up a booth with information on the issue of gender transition. And he staffed that booth along with uh, a very notable transitioner, Chloe Cole. Roy was also kind enough to mention that some of this work had developed out of a connection he had made at our Free Speech and Medicine Conference last fall in Bedeck with Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, who is the founder of Do No Harm Medicine. Our conference is a go again for this fall. If anything, we're more excited about this year than last. We have speakers on issues around gender transitioning. We have several prominent lawyers who are experts in free speech and the bounds of colleges' rights to limit doctors. Uh, We have Dr. Ian McGilchrist, a prominent prominent philosopher, neuroscientist, and thinker. And our our keynote, Dr. Gad Saad, will be well known to many of you. We really hope you can come. And again, all the information is at freespeechandmedicine.com. Registration is limited as attendee numbers are limited by venue size. So please do sign up soon. I'm here today with Roy Epen. And Roy is, I, I would, I hope it's okay, Roy, if I could now call you a friend. I consider you a friend from my end. Um, I certainly consider you a friend. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. And so I've, I've gotten to know Roy over the last couple of years. Roy is uh, what I call another medical heretic. And um, he's done some really good and interesting work lately, which I think is really important that I wanted to talk to him about. We'll, we'll get into to why I wanted to talk to you, but firstly, maybe you can just sort of introduce yourself. Uh, who are you? Where are you from? Wh- what do you do? Uh, well, I'm an endocrinologist. Um, I work in Montreal and at a small community hospital, which is associated with McGill University. Um, so I'm nominally an assistant professor there. So I teach residents and medical students, but I'm a general endocrinologist. 
I uh, met Chris through a group uh, of, of people who were somewhat heretical about the, the lockdowns. Um, and um, I ended up doing some of the stuff I'm doing because of Chris, because what happened was I went to his free speech in medicine conference, which I highly recommend. Um, and one of the uh, speakers was uh, a doctor, uh, Stanley uh, Goldfarb, who had started an organization in the United States called uh, Do No Harm. And uh, I asked a question and apparently he liked my question. So they got in touch with me afterward and asked them to join um, join their efforts. Um, so um, I'm, the stuff I'm doing now is because of Chris and, and his lovely wife. Oh, well, that's very kind and generous of you. I, I, I think you probably would have uh, ended up doing such things anyway, but I'm glad that our conference facilitated it. So that's wonderful. So, you, so you've been an endocrinologist for how many years now, right? Uh, more than I'd like to say, probably <laughs> almost 30 years. Okay. So it's amazing. You started when you were eight years old. Um, so I actually, you know, it's interesting in, in Montreal, you can go to medical school after, after high school. So I, I went to medical school at grade, after grade 13, we have a program here after something called our CJEPs, which are junior colleges. So uh, I, I was very young when I started as an endocrinologist, I was like 28, 29. Okay, now gotcha. I would have had to do two extra degrees to get my job. Yes, yeah. So you did start pretty young. Um, so you've been an endo for a long time. Uh, and, you know, just for a crowd, an endocrinologist is somebody who uh, deals with uh, glands, basically, and hormones, right? Yes. Right. But as I say, endocrinology is life. Uh, everything everything so is endocrinology. All of the controls of the body are, are endocrine. Um, so you, what was your experience that led you to the current work you're doing with do no harm. And, and again, we'll work our way into talking about what you're doing, but you had mentioned to me, you had some experiences as an endocrinologist over last year's, which you found a little bit unsettling. You want to talk about that? So um, in the last few years, um, I've, um, I have dealt with uh, transgender uh, patients and I've, I've tried to help them as best I can um, as adults, not, not uh, children. And um, in the last few years, um, I, I've not, I've, I've chosen not to pursue seeing more of these patients because some of the things they ask for, I'm not really capable of doing uh, for instance, I've had patients ask me for uh, both estrogen and, and testosterone, both the male hormone and the female hormone, depending on the day and how they feel. And that seems somewhat unreasonable to me. And um, I, 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 I've, I've found it increasingly uh, difficult to, to uh, justify continuing this 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 practice um, on my own and i mean i'm i'm perfectly happy to refer to uh my colleagues who are more uh, experienced in this my problem has been in 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 youngsters so if you're over the age of 18 i i personally believe you can do whatever that whatever you want i mean that that's your business but um i'm 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 hearing and seeing all kinds of uh, large numbers of younger people who are uh, getting involved in, in being transgender, um, which is, you know, something that, that uh, exists. But I suspect that the, the treatment that we're 
now allowing aggressive treatment of, of, of people under the age of 18 with hormones, puberty blockers, and, and surgery um, should probably be thought of with a lot of a, a, a lot of a grain of salt. We need we need to be very careful when you do such things because ultimately, you uh, if you're doing this when these kids are less than eighteen, um, you're you're robbing them of uh, many experiences later in life. And the the data for these kids is that most of them will uh, either end up you know, getting over the gender dysphoria when they're older or, or becoming gay. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it, it's been troubling to me and, and, and many of my colleagues, I, I speak to a lot of my colleagues who, who are also troubled by this, but everyone's sort of afraid to talk about it because of, because of the activists are very active in telling everyone that we hate, we hate, uh, transgender children, which is, as far from the truth as is 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 people because i love children and i i, I want to make sure that we do what's best for them and i think most of us care very deeply for 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 children uh, particularly because you know you know these are things that uh, will af affect them and i've met some of the the kids who've detransitioned from this and you know it's it, it's the detransitioning is uh, some of these kids are profoundly upset by these things later on in life. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very careful about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I'm, there's a lot of roads we can go down here to talk about. I, I guess I'll make a brief comment before I, I, I get with you. I guess I want to really focus on your, your expertise as an endocrinologist, but it, it's very strange to me that there's been this massive rise of transgenderism. Where did that come from? What are the societal forces? Uh, why are so many kids now thinking that if if they're a girl, but they like certain boy things, that it means they're actually a boy, um, you know, because we had gone so far down the road of saying it doesn't matter if you're a girl and you like to do stereotypical boy things, that's fine. You don't have to be a stereotypical girl. You could be any kind of girl. You can be any kind of boy. And then suddenly we seem to be forcing people into these gender roles saying, if you're, if you're a, a boy and you like to skip rope and you like to you like flowers, then of course you should probably change to being a girl. It just seems, it seems very strange to me. Uh, I, I guess I'll pause and allow you to comment. Or did you feel similarly? I, I agree. Um, you know, I, you probably can hear, I'm, I have a pretty high pitched voice and I'm a little bit of a girly boy, um, but I've always known I'm a boy. I'm wondering now if I were in this in this era, they would have told me maybe I'm transgender. But I mean, it never occurred to me when I was growing up, and I happen to be gay. And um, you know, I I kind of wonder what what they would say about me now, whether I would have been told I'm trans. I mean, this is this is a very odd practice. I mean, it's also done in certain countries in, in the world that if you're, if, if they think you're gay, they make you uh, change gender to, to fit in more. And it's, you know, like in Iran. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of odd that we, we now think of men and women in very stereotypical ways when, when, you know, I, I think I mean, there are, there are gender roles, but I think we were getting to a point where we were saying, you know, I know lots of tomboyish girls who are, are girls and they have no wish to be anything else. And, you know, how are we getting away from that and getting back to these very stereotypical visions of men and women, which I, I don't think are particularly useful. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's my own opinion. 
Gotcha. Yeah. And like I say, we could talk for a long time about that, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep focusing on, like I say, picking that really educated part of your brain that, that many of us would, that's of great interest. Like a lot of people would love to talk to an endocrinologist about these things. And here I have this opportunity, so I'm going to do it. So one of the questions that I have for you is, I hear this term puberty blockers. And the way I've heard it described is that we're delaying puberty to give kids a chance to make their decisions on what gender they want to be. But as an endocrinologist, is it possible to delay puberty and then do it later? Um, so these were originally sort of, they're LHRH analogs. So LHRH is the the hormone that comes from the hypothalamus and, and, and releases other hormones that uh, release the the, the hormones that cause uh, people to go into puberty. So um, we used to use these for uh, precocious puberty, um, and I, they were they were deemed relatively safe. But I'm I'm just wondering uh, if it's such a good idea to do this in large numbers. So we didn't do it in large numbers. It was it was a very rare thing that we do we did this kind of thing and. Uh, there's no really good study showing there there are some studies on on these precocious puberty kids but there's no study on on, on what we're doing now um on in tanner stages two and three uh for for those kind of things so i'm i am quite concerned uh what's going to happen and there's questions about whether you can get osteoporosis there's questions about you know uh, whether you'll you'll uh, actually uh, delay some other uh, other problems and and you know I I don't think there's any good data on it and mm -hmm. it, th that concerns me and there are a lot of reviews going on in other countries in the world where they were much more advanced than we are on on these kind of things and um, that they, they're backing off on using these things both in the United Kingdom and in many of the Scandinavian countries mm -hmm. so um, you know. Delaying puberty and just saying, "Oh, we were delaying it." Uh, puberty has all kinds of other aspects for it, which I, I, I'm not sure we completely understand everything about it, and I'm not sure we're we're doing this in a completely rational way. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So, so yeah, that's. I guess my question is: We take a kid who's 11 and about to go through puberty, and we just we put them on a puberty blocker. So it's not clear whether if we just take them off that puberty blocker at 18, they'll go through a normal puberty at that point. Is that true? Um, so they probably will, but you, you know, you're, you're, you may be missing height targets. You may be missing, you may be missing, uh, you may be causing some problems with osteoporosis ultimately. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I, I think that uh, we need to explore these things more before we, we, uh, we, we, we do such things and, you know, um, so you're also talking about putting these, these kids on the, the, for very long periods. I mean, eight, eight, nine years is quite a long period of time, which mm -hmm. makes me somewhat, uh, uh, skeptical of this. And, and we don't have good studies to show, uh, what we're doing. This is sort of, this is done all, uh, outside of the FDA guidelines. Gotcha. So, so the, the experience that you mentioned, so just to go back to what you said, these, there is some experience in kids with precocious puberty. So early, yes. early, early puberty. So that, that would be, and just again, for listeners that may not oh, be so the, medical. You get the odd kid who will go into puberty at age three and four. 
Um, and we used to we used to put these kids on on those kind of uh, on puberty blockers until they were like you know twelve or thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, ten years, twelve years. I mean, and those those are pretty rare cases. We didn't see a lot of them. So gotcha. And and that would be so you'd be blocking a child's puberty before a normal puberty, not during a normal puberty, which is what exactly is happening now. So that's a different beast. Gotcha. Okay. Um, interesting. So uh, tell me, uh, so you have started to speak out against this, uh, what some of us would feel is a bit of a rush to transition kids, uh, both medically with, with hormone therapy and surgically. You, you've become outspoken on it. Um, and that happened through your involvement with Do No Harm. Uh, tell me about that. You've done some exciting stuff recently. So uh, Do No Harm is an organization that was founded, like I said, by Dr. Goldfarb. And it's a, it's, it's a group of, of doctors who, you know, uh, that is part of the Hippocratic Oath uh, to do no harm. Um, and we, went, we, we decided that we should ask the people who are recommending these programs to look at their own guidelines. So I'm a, I've been a member of the Endocrine Society for 30 years, and we want the Endocrine Society to look at their guidelines. So their guidelines are actually uh, somewhat reasonable. They actually say you should not do any surgery until the kid is uh, 17, 18, um, and that you should uh, use the puberty blockers and, and hormones much later. Uh, a lot of people seem to be uh, going around those guidelines. Um, so we would like the, the, the guidelines to be looked at again, uh, in light of all kinds of systemic reviews that are happening all over the place. And the guidelines are already five years old. Um, and if you look at the guidelines, we usually uh, grade the guidelines by level of evidence. And a lot of the evidence for, for the guidelines, uh, for, uh, for, uh, transgender children are level C, level D evidence, which is basically there's no... There's no study there. It's almost it's almost all expert opinion, um, and I think it's time to to rethink these. In spite, in, 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 given that many many other countries are also rethinking them. Gotcha. And 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 just uh, again to kind of clarify that point they make, um, the expert opinion evidence. It's the same evidence that said that all kids should be forced to get COVID vaccines and et cetera, et cetera, and that lockdown was going to be good for exactly. all of them or not. That was expert opinion as well. Exactly. Um, An expert opinion radically changes from time to time. So, you know, uh, expert opinion is, is somewhat dubious to me in terms of, of guidelines. I mean, if you want to give a guideline, you want to have a, a, lots of studies showing that kind of proof that are randomized control trials, um, you know, at least randomized control trials. Maybe observational studies serve as level B evidence, but, you know, at least at least get some randomized control trials and there really aren't uh, any such things so we did something very interesting we we decided we were going to have a booth at the endocrine society meeting so we have a large meeting every year uh this year it was in uh, it was in chicago and you know six or seven thousand endocrinologists show up from all over the world and uh, we had a booth there saying that we that basically we wanted uh uh, the Endocrine Society to review its guidelines, which it hasn't done in five, you know, five or six years, because the last guideline set was in 2017. 
Um, and we talked to lots of endocrinologists from all over the world. And <clears throat> we actually brought um, uh, someone named Chloe Cole, who is a, a detransitioner. And she spoke to a, a lot of people and everyone was very polite and, and it was very, uh, very collegial. And um, many, many patients, many doctors from all over the world and in, within the United States uh, expressed some concern about the, the guidelines and what we were doing, um, which means that there, there is an interest in, in going over the guidelines. And um, I wrote an article, I wrote a couple of articles. I wrote <coughs> one article in the Chicago Daily Herald uh, asking the Endocrine Society for uh, a review of the guidelines. And uh, we wrote an article about our experience at the uh, Endocrine Society, which was public published in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and right. we've gotten a fair bit of attention from both of those. Um, um, uh, so much so that the Endocrine Society, the new president, um, mm -hmm. actually wrote a letter in response to the, uh, to uh, my uh, article with uh Ian Kingsbury, who is director of research at uh, Do No Harm. Mm -hmm. um, he's an epidemiologist and he goes through a lot of these studies and, and you know, ep uh, you, you and I both know epidemiology is sort of a bit of a black box. And uh, yeah. yes. it's, it's good to have experts in the field, uh, guide physicians who uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert in that field at all, but mm -hmm. uh, Ian is. And the uh, it was quite kind of interesting because we were surprised that the president of the Endocrine Society actually took the time to write a letter to the letter to the editor in the uh, in the Wall Street Journal, basically saying that uh, their guidelines were good. Eighteen thousand endocrinologists can't be wrong, and there's no need to look at them. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, which which I found kind of unscientific. Yes. So are you you're planning to reply to that? I assume. Yes, we've written a reply and it should be out early next week. So uh, we basically, in, in the reply, I'm not giving any secrets away, ask that uh, perhaps the, our, the, our concerns be addressed without, you know, without uh, just dismissing them. Because he did not address the, the fact that these were, uh, uh, there were reviews in other countries and, and, and everything that's happening in the United Kingdom and, and and Sweden and Norway and Finland. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, but, you know, we must have gotten a little under their skin because he did answer, uh, which we were a little surprised. Well, that's good. You know, the conversation is good. Even if he disagrees, at least people are talking about it. At least it's not just one side of the story being told. So that's that's good. And I, I commend you on starting that. We, your, what's been your experience? You met, you alluded to it a bit, but um, what's your feeling um, having put this out there, put yourself out there? How do you gauge I, the I, public I, opinion? I, I I haven't spoke. You see, I haven't spoken to a lot of pediatric uh, endocrinologists, but I've spoken to a lot of my adult uh, endocrinology colleagues, and many of them are quite. Uh, quite wary about all this, and and I th I think a lot of people are afraid to speak out because of you know uh, you can get really uh, quite a backlash to to these kind of things. But I think there I don't know if there's a consensus because I haven't spoken to enough people, but a lot of the people that I've spoken to 
we're concerned by this and would assist and think a systemic review would be good. I mean, my my uh, thoughts on this, it would be good to get sort of a uh, a registry of everyone who, who who does to transition to 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 see what's going on because we're not talking about something that's going to be a short term thing. We're talking about lifelong changes, which are going to include in, include lifelong hormones and and you you know giving estrogen for long term can lead to some kind of cancers as as can testosterone. So you know I, we we should we should be very careful about this and we should you know we used to give out testosterone and uh, we give we used to give out estrogen to every lady i when i was first starting out you you, you may remember this we, mm-hmm. we thought estrogen was the bee's knees we we were giving it out left and right until that women's health initiative that said you know in older women it was probably not such a good idea we thought we thought that it prevented dementia we thought it, it prevented heart disease osteoporosis and it turns out that none of that is particularly true and sometimes maybe the opposite is true i, I saw a recent paper saying that maybe uh, prolonged estrogen use after after about 10 years in menopause can cause some degree of, of dementia mm. so you know uh, I, I i think we should always be careful about uh, long-term uh, treatments um and I, I that's why i would i would like to see a registry i'm not sure who's going to do that but you know Especially for these kids, Bermain, you're you're now talking about keeping kids on on uh, cross hormones for you know fifty, sixty, seventy years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm going to ask you a very specific question. Um, the the term gender affirming hormone therapy has kind of slipped into our medical lexicon. I've seen it used in newspaper articles. I've seen it used in many medical articles now. What do you think of that term, gender affirming hormones? You know, it's sort of gotten to the point that we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to do a history and physical and and try and make a diagnosis. I mean, you know, gender affirming. So in in the old days, we used to when we would send people for transgender, we would put people on hormones. We would ask for a thorough psychological evaluation. And I think part of the problem now is all the psychologists and psychiatrists who are, who would actually do that are sort of retiring from the field because nowadays, unless you affirm what the person is saying, uh, you're considered transphobic or some such thing. Um, when I think that it, it's really a, a good idea to do the talk therapy before going on to the, I mean, uh, gender dysphoria, this have roots in psychological distress. So shouldn't we try and relieve the psychological distress in any way possible and make sure that, you know, that the, the, before we're giving hormones and, and doing surgery as a, a treatment for psychological distress, it seems odd to me without, without a thorough psychiatric and psychological evaluation of what's going on. Mm, yeah, I agree. And then you, I'm sure you've heard this uh, analogy too, Roy, that I think, you know, you look at any other issue where you look at any other uh, psychological problem where somebody has discomfort with their body, whether they're anorexic, bulimic, whether they think their breasts are too small or too big, or whether they don't like their nose. But the, our first thing as physicians is not to say, let's change that body for you. But it, the first thing is maybe just to try to talk to them a bit and you yeah. know, and then and, and say your body is actually 
maybe not that bad as it is. And can we accept that? And can we help you with that? Rather than jumping right to if, if obviously we'll make you feel better if we change your body part that you're uncomfortable with. And a lot of the gender dysphoria in children, at least, goes away. So, you know, before we we make massive changes, um, if the gender dysphoria is going to go away, a either on its own with with a little bit of help, or the the the, the kid turns out to be gay, you know, mm-hmm. that that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let the kid be who the kid is. Yes. Well, you, you you turned out to be gay and you turned out pretty good, I think. So <laughs> you're a good example. Um, I'm going to gonna kind of try to wrap up a bit now, but uh, I really appreciate you speaking highly of our conference. Um, it was a great event for us. It took a lot of work, but we discussed such a great bunch of people there. So it was really wonderful. Um, you're a bit of a, you're a bit of a conference junkie like me, or you like going to conferences and meeting people. I'm, I'm exactly the same way. And uh, just so, so people know you're, you are planning to come back this year and yes. you're going to be one of our expert panelists. Well, I don't know how much of an expert I am, but I am going to be a panelist. So Right on. Well, I consider you certainly you're more than expert in endocrinology, and there's many things that you can uh, tell us that the rest of us um, certainly don't know about. I, I'll, I'm going to ask you one question, which I've asked a number of my guests before. There's a lot of people who feel the way that you or I do about these various issues, about COVID policy, about transgender issue and how we're approaching it. But they, they keep their views quiet. They prefer to fly below the radar. What makes you brave? What drives you to do this? What makes you put yourself out there and take the slings and arrows that inevitably come with this kind of stance? Well, so far, I haven't had a lot of slings and arrows, um, you know, uh, but um, I think it's an important thing. I think that children are important and I think that we need to protect them. I mean, one of the the most horrible things I thought I found about COVID is we, 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 we sort of harm children to protect adults. That's wrong. Mm. It is our job as adults to protect children. We, mm. we took them out of schools. We, we, we made them, we, we made a generation of poor children poor for life. Mm. Um, and because we said we're protecting adults and I, I can't tell you how evil that sounds to me. Um, and, this is particularly, th- I come from India. There is a generation of children who were married off during this last few years who are, we have condemned to lives of poverty and poverty that people here can't even imagine. Mm. So, you know, protecting children is something that we should be doing. And if I can do this in one small way and then speak out on behalf of, of children, um, who may not appreciate what I'm doing, but I mean, you know, maybe hopefully later on they might. Um, that's what I, that's what I want to do. I mean, I'm <laughs> I, I'm trying to I'm trying to be a little bit under the radar, but I guess if I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, it's not so easy to be under the radar. Yeah, you're you're out of the closet now, right? I hate to tell yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, that you can't get much more public than the Wall Street Journal, but yeah. I mean, Anyway, listen, I, I really appreciate your bravery. I appreciate you uh, speaking the truth and and not being afraid to to you know take what comes with that. It's a, I like what Jordan Peterson says. There are consequences to speaking out, but there are consequences to staying silent too. And for some of us, the consequences of staying silent seem more grave than than the the the, the, the other option. So anyway, I do appreciate it. And 
thanks for your time. Is there anything else you want to say before we we finish? Well, all I can say is the conference is in a beautiful part of the world. Uh, It's just a lovely part of the world. And the conference was wonderful. I met so many interesting and, 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 and very passionate people. And I, I recommend it highly to people. I'm I'm sure it's already sold out, but if you can get a ticket, go go. Lovely. Well, th- thanks so much. Um, yeah, we we have good response already. We just released. Uh, we do. We just opened up registration, and it's uh, it's gonna. I, I believe it'll fill up. Uh, it's it's uh, registration is going along briskly. So I hope I hope people do uh, do sign up and do come because it's a great event. Okay. Thanks, Roy. Uh, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.